Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. This week's story, like all of our other stories, is a horrid tale of a life taken too soon. But what makes this one different is that the victim is disabled, and the systems in place that were meant to protect her ultimately failed her. Previously, I told a story about Jennifer Lee Daugherty, who had a learning disability and was murdered by her friends. If you want to check out that story, the episode is titled Cruel Intentions, and it's on the Stories from the Mortuary YouTube channel. In both Jennifer's case and the one I'm going to tell you about today, the victims never got the attention they deserved. They're both white women, and in a time where true crime is dominated by white female voices, it's odd to me that these cases have fallen by the wayside. But if I'm being honest, I think their being disabled outweighs them being white, and that's probably why these cases aren't as widely recognized. They don't exactly fit the picture of a traditionally beautiful white girl being murdered. However, this podcast is dedicated to giving those unheard voices a chance to be listened to. I also do want to give a trigger warning for molestation, sexual assault and abuse, uh, child abuse, and incest. But before we get into today's case, I'm going to ask for your help in another missing indigenous woman's case. Fox 13 Seattle reports that Mary Johnson, a 39-year-old member of the Tulalip tribes, was last seen on November 25, 2020, when she planned to meet a friend to go to Arlington but she never reached the meeting location and no friends or family had heard from her. Johnson's estranged husband officially reported her missing on December 9th, 2020. Johnson's two sisters told the Herald Net that they thought their sister's husband would have filed a missing persons report sooner, but he didn't until two weeks after his wife's disappearance. Since then, the sisters claim he's left the state. Jerry Davis, Johnson's younger sister, said that Johnson had not been acting herself leading up to her disappearance. Davis said Johnson and her husband were initially living with her, but suddenly moved to a town about 40 miles away. Afterward, Davis said Johnson rarely answered her phone. The day before Johnson disappeared, she allegedly went to tribal court to get advice about a divorce. Quote, it's like she just vanished, Nona Blowen, Johnson's older sister, told CBS News. Quote, you think you'd be able to get some leads, but after almost a year, it's just frustrating and heartbreaking. According to a search warrant obtained by the Herald Net, Johnson's husband took her to a male friend's house on November 24th to stay on the northern side of the Tulalip Reservation. The couple wasn't getting along and Johnson was afraid that her husband was trying to move away. Later that day, Johnson's friend drove her to the tribal court to get legal advice, but no attorneys were available. Along with another person, Johnson stayed at the friend's house that night. He was supposed to take her and the other guests to a church the next day, where Johnson planned to meet someone else who was going to take her near Arlington. However, due to a disagreement the guest had with the driver, he and Johnson didn't end up getting a ride to the church. Instead, they walked. The friend who was supposed to pick Johnson up at the church didn't find her there, but he did see her walking along the road with the other man. The driver sent Johnson a text that he didn't have enough room in his car for them both, and Johnson replied that she was almost there. According to the warrant, the man walking with Johnson told police he stopped at a friend's house while Johnson kept walking by herself, but she never showed up. Before she disappeared, Johnson called the couple who she was supposed to stay with near Arlington. About an hour later, Johnson's cell phone connected to a tower in Oso, nearly 11 miles east of Arlington, but her friends told the police that she never arrived. Later that night and into the next day, the phone connected to Marysville, 25 miles from Oso, and still no one had heard from her. The next morning, her phone was off. 
Nikki Cleary, the director of media and marketing for the Tulalip Tribes and Tulalip Tribal Police, said that criminal investigations concerning tribal members can be complicated. Quote, the cases in Native America are really complex because of the jurisdictional issues. Tribes are sovereign and tribal courts and jurisdictions should be recognized the way state jurisdiction is, but it's not always. Community members held a vigil on Johnson's tribal reservation the week this article was published to remember her and honor other Washington indigenous people who've gone missing and have yet to be found. Family and friends came together to pay homage to Johnson in a spiritual-like ceremony at the Tulalip Reservation Gathering Hall. Tulalip Police Chief Chris Sutter announced the reward for information leading to the conviction of whoever's responsible for Mary's disappearance is now up to $60,000. Anyone with information should call the Tulalip Police tip line at 360-716-5918. When we return from the break, we'll begin this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore memento underscore mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M. E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. At 2 a.m., a train headed on its usual route through Finley, Ohio. Up ahead, there was what looked like a deer huddled in the middle of the tracks. The train honked to scare the deer away, but it wouldn't budge. It was too late to stop. The conductor called the police. By three, there were flashlights scouring the tracks. Then they saw her. Curled up in a ball was the bloodied body of a young woman. The location of this grisly discovery couldn't have been more symbolic. On a train trestle in the center of Finley, Ohio, a town once designated by an official act of Congress as Flag City, USA. It was known for its good schools, low crime, and famous sports stars. Little girls dreamed of becoming homecoming queens and cheerleaders. But now, someone had taken a knife to this picture of all-American bliss and left one little girl under the central overpass, slashed, bruised, and slaughtered. For a homicide that started out with a naked dead woman with no ID, no witnesses, no murder weapon, no suspects, and no apparent motive, Finley police solved the case incredibly fast. She had been to the hospital before. There was a social worker involved. She had bruises. She had been beaten. An indication of how authorities struggled with this bizarre case from the very beginning is that they didn't inform the public for a day and a half after the body was discovered. As stated in an article published in an Ohio newspaper, quote, the first homicide of the year occurred on Finley early Sunday, but it took city police 35 hours to tell the public about it. The courier received a tip Sunday that a body had been found under the Dr. Martin Luther King overpass, but police refused to either confirm or deny the report Sunday night and again on Monday morning. Finally, a press release was issued Monday afternoon. The wait was too long. 
Even if police are busy investigating or haven't notified next of kin, they can still confirm a death, provide the when and where, and advise if a suspect is still at large and dangerous without jeopardizing a case. Providing timely information not only quells rumors and fears, but can also provide useful tips from the public. Citizens deserve timely information when serious crimes such as murder occur. Due diligence is the cornerstone of death care, and it's evident that police didn't practice this when it came to handling the murder of Vera Jo Regal. Vera's mother, Verna Messersmith, wasn't informed of her daughter's death by police. A woman Vera had been living with named Sherry Brooks had told them that Vera's parents had died, which of course was untrue, and law enforcement took Sherry's word. According to coroner talk, death notification is acknowledged to be one of the most difficult tasks faced by law enforcement officers and other professionals, because learning of a death of a loved one often is the most traumatic event in a person's life. The moment of notification is one that most people remember very vividly for the rest of their life, sometimes with pain and anger. There are some cardinal principles of death notification. One of these principles is always making the death notification in person. It's very important to provide the survivor with a human presence or presence of compassion during an extremely stressful time. Notifiers who are present can help if the survivor has a dangerous shock reaction, which is not at all uncommon, and they can help the survivor move through this most difficult moment. Furthermore, death information should never be taken over the police radio. The information should be over the telephone or it might leak out to family through the media or private parties listening to police radio. The next principle of death notification is making it in time and with certainty. It's essential to provide notification as soon as possible, but be sure, first, that there's positive identification of the victim. The next of kin and others who live in the same household should be notified, including roommates and unmarried partners. Too many survivors are devastated by learning of the death of a loved one from the media. Mistaken death notifications also have caused enormous trauma. Before the notification, it's important to move quickly to gather information. This includes determining the deceased person's next of kin and gathering critical information, obtaining as much detail as possible about the circumstances of the death, about health considerations concerning the survivors to be notified, and whether other people are likely to be present at the notification. Vera Jo Regal and her family were not given such considerations. Sherry Brooks wanted all of her sons to have at least one kid by the time they were 16 or 17. An example of this is Gina Lopez, a 15-year-old girl with a troubled family life who fell in love with Sherry's second youngest son, Garth. Sherry constantly told Gina she loved babies and wanted a grandbaby. As soon as she was carrying a Brooks baby, the stalking and the threats began. At the time, Gina was working at a small shop at the corner of Center and Main Street. Sherry and her sons, Zachary, Garth, and Chucky all worked as a team. Chucky would be the one that followed Gina most of the time, but sometimes it would be Zachary. They would follow her after work to see if she went anywhere afterwards or just went straight back to the Brooks home. Fortunately for Gina, her pregnancy ended in a miscarriage and she was able to reconcile with her mother and move to Kentucky. She put a couple of hundred miles between herself and the madness up in Finley, Ohio. But before Gina, there was Vera. Vera Jo Regal had a dreadful childhood. Her entire life she had been taken advantage of by everyone she knew. Her own father began sexually abusing her when she was only 11 years old, and her mother's boyfriend did the same. Her father was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the offense, but the damage had already been done. 
a mentally disabled 11-year-old had no way of looking at life positively. She soon drifted apart from her mother and her mother's family. She was widely known to have a learning disability, with experts claiming that her intellectual capacity was that of an eight-year-old. She was able to graduate from high school thanks to her teachers and special classes. Soon after, she went on disability and began receiving payments from the government. No matter her age, though, Vera was still a child. Lisa Bayer, Vera's high school teacher, recalled that Vera never complained and would always help in any way she could. If you told Vera something, she'd do it, and she didn't question it, almost to the point that it was too much. Vera began dating a boy named Zachary Brooks, who was only 13 years old at the time when she was 19 years old. Despite their age difference, Vera moved into a dilapidated two-story house with Zachary Brooks and his family. After that, not a single day in her life felt normal. Sherry Brooks, Zachary's mother, was the matriarch of the Brooks family. Those around her likened Sherry to Charles Manson and the way that she was able to bend people to her will. When Sherry convinced Vera to move into her home, Vera's old life vanished instantly. It was like she had joined a cult and was severed from her past. Her aunt Ruby Garner remembered seeing Vera at the Salvation Army across the street from the Brooks home. She recalled that Vera always used to light up and excitedly wave hello to her, but on this day, surrounded by members of the Brooks family, Vera merely put up her hood and avoided eye contact. The Brooks family, primarily Sherry, didn't allow her to maintain a relationship with her parents or anyone else in her family. It didn't take long for other people to see a change, too. Before she started dating Zachary Brooks, she was happy and outgoing. She loved to sing and dance to Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton. She liked all the older country music. But once she moved in with the Brooks family, she quickly changed. Vera was always known to be kind and willing to help others, but at the Brooks house, she was forced to massage Sherry's feet daily. If she did something wrong during the massage, Sherry would hit her with her scratching stick. Sherry even made Vera sleep with a pig they had at the home. It stayed in a closet covered in urine and feces, and that's often where Vera lay her head at night. The cops were called continuously, children's services were called continuously, and not once was anything done to remove Vera from the situation. It had gotten to the point where the Brooks family was called what one dispatcher named frequent flyers. Police were called to the Brooks home 10 times in two years for domestic violence allegations. Vera had been questioned several times by police, but under extreme pressure and fear of the Brooks family, she refused to say anything negative about them, claiming that she was happy living with them and wanted to stay. Despite her diminished mental capacity and obvious signs of abuse, Vera was found fit to make her own decisions at the age of 24. On September 13, 2010, a Finley police dispatch log showed a call from Ashley Messersmith, who's Vera's sister. Quote, Complainant said that her sister's being beaten and kept hostage by the Brooks, but no report was ever filed. Behind closed doors, Vera was quite literally a slave in the Brooks home. The family made her do everything around the house, and every month when her social security check came in the mail, it was Sherry who took it. She additionally collected her own SSI check along with the SSI checks for all of her children and anyone else that moved into the house. But more than Vera's money, Sherry wanted her womb. Every time there was a pregnancy in the Brooks house, Sherry wished it was a girl. In March of 2009, Sherry convinced 22-year-old Vera to get pregnant by her 16-year-old son, Zachary. 
Because of this, Vera Jo Regal was murdered due to two conflicting motives. The primary motive was based on Sherry's obsession with baby girls, an abnormal perversion that began in childhood when she, like Vera, was sexually abused by her own father, the man who nicknamed Sherry Sugar Babe. As a young child, Sherry and her three siblings became wards of the state. It was there that she made her first attempt to take someone else's baby. When she was 16, she told her mother that she had a child while in foster care, but welfare wouldn't let her maintain custody. Since it would have been her first grandchild, Sherry's mother tried to go get the baby. It was then that she was informed that the child Sherry claimed was hers was actually a baby that was at the foster home with her. Later in her life, Sherry gave birth to nine children, the first five of which were taken from her and placed into foster care. In three of the cases, she lost custody, at least in part due to reports of sexual abuse. Sherry's own aunt, Wanda Smith, recounted walking in on her while she committed the most heinous act on her infant child by holding the child up by their arms while orally assaulting them. Another one of her children, Scotty Emmons, recalls that his mother molested him as well. Sherry, on the other hand, doesn't publicly deny these allegations. In an excerpt from Hancock County Children's Services versus Sherry Maloney from May 14, 1986, it states, quote, In the month of November 1983, Joshua's father slapped him about the face, cursed him, and threw him forcefully down on a couch because the child's crying agitated him. This occurred in the presence of Joshua's mother, who did nothing to stop it, and apparently is willing to cover up for the fact that it happened. Sherry's first five children were not removed as a group. When her baby girl Maria was born, she formed an attachment to the child that she never had with her boys. She wouldn't let Maria out of her sight, and she didn't let anyone else hold her. By all accounts, it was the loss of this child, baby Maria, that was the most dramatic. Sherry took the best care of Maria out of all of her children, and subsequently she kept custody of Maria for the longest of her children, for a whole year. But in the spring of 1987, Sherry reverted to her old ways and things went horribly wrong. Maria needed to be taken to the hospital. She had been molested and was bleeding from her vagina. It wasn't even discovered until someone else was changing her diaper. That night, Sherry reclaimed her baby, but the authorities were on her trail. They told her to take Maria to the doctor the next day, but she didn't. It was Easter Sunday when Sherry handed Maria to her mother and told her to take Maria home with her. The next morning, there was a knock at the door. It was a sheriff, and he had to take Maria away from Sherry. Sherry always yearned for a baby girl, and that desire only increased when Maria was taken away from her. She wanted to have somebody bear her a daughter and then claim the child as her own. When Vera came along, she locked onto her new target. Vera loved to babysit, and to everyone around her, she seemed to be an excellent mother to her own child. Unfortunately, Sherry was in charge, and she saw things differently. This wasn't just any womb chosen for the assignment, because Sherry once targeted Vera herself to replace her lost baby. Back when Sherry lost Maria, she lived on Sandusky Street on the floor above Vera's family. For five months from the time baby Vera was born in November until the sheriff took baby Maria at Easter, the two little girls lived in separate units of the exact same house. According to Vera's mother, Sherry tried taking Vera away from her. Remarkably, Sherry ended up taking the baby of the baby she tried to get 24 years earlier, claiming custody of Vera's daughter Willa Dean before she was even born. 
As Vera's belly grew, Sherry told people it was her baby in Vera's stomach. Another example of Sherry's control appeared in the date of the child's birth. Sherry's birthday is November 3rd, and Willadine's birthday is November 4th. It's here we glimpse the true depth of Sherry's madness. During Vera's pregnancy, she was given castor oil mixed with orange juice. The castor oil was meant to induce early labor. According to a website for the castor oil industry, the recommended dosage for inducing labor with this old midwifing technique is two tablespoons. Sherry had waited so long to get Vera pregnant that she couldn't wait any longer and forced Vera to drink three full bottles of the castor oil. <coughs> because of the early birth due to Sherry's obsession with sharing the baby's birthday, Willadine had to stay in the hospital for a while due to heart problems. Her original due date was supposed to be December 6th, nearly a month later. When Vera's daughter was born, she wasn't allowed to interact with her, let alone hold her. The Brooks family kept telling Willadine that Sherry was her mom, not Vera. Willadine would cry for her mother and began to walk towards Vera, but she would back away, telling the baby that if she touched her, she would get in trouble. And this was true. Every time Vera was caught holding Willadine, Zachary hit her. The second motive for Vera Jo Regal's murder was simpler than Sherry's obsession with baby girls. It was because Zachary Brooks didn't want to be with her anymore. He wanted to be with other girls, but he couldn't because Sherry wouldn't let Vera leave. As a result, Zachary said that he needed to get rid of her because he was seeing someone else. For Vera, she wanted to stay with Zachary because they had a baby together. But whenever Vera got jealous because she wanted him to herself, he would beat her. At first, before she got beaten into submission, Vera would fight back. According to other members of the Brooks family, Vera could be rebellious. But when she got mad that he was talking to other girls, he would get mad at her. And this usually resulted in Vera's physical abuse. One time, Zachary smacked Vera with his cell phone so hard that her eyebrow ring was torn out of her face. In a typical nuclear family, the father would step in and stop this kind of abuse, but not Kevin Brooks Sr. He's the opposite of Sherry. Where Sherry was loud and upfront and boisterous, Kevin was a background person who liked to stay out of everything and mind his own business even when minding his own business meant letting Vera get beaten. When it became clear that they were really going to kill her, Kevin looked out for Kevin. At the time, he was about to serve 30 days in jail. He told Sherry and the boys that if they were going to kill Vera, to wait until he was in jail so he could have an alibi. As crazy as it sounds, if Vera was going to be saved, it would have had to have been by one of the Brooks boys. Unfortunately, the only one brave enough to stand up to Sherry was already dead. Kevin Brooks Jr., also known as Punky, ran the Brooks household when he was alive. On July 3, 2010, the summer before Vera's murder, Punky and his girlfriend Heather went for a walk. Though Sherry recalled that they were on their way to see fireworks, the truth was is that they were walking to pick up heroin. It was nearing 10 o'clock, and the night was warm as Punky and Heather headed down a rural highway to their friend's house. They heard the distant sound of fireworks bursting in the air. It was a good night. At the time, Punky was the leader of the Finley Crips at only 19 years old. The couple were walking northbound on County Road 220, and Heather was about five paces ahead of Punky. At the same time, 32-year-old Eric Calvin was also making his way northbound on County Road 220. He worked for Accurate Cab, so he was driving a red 2007 Saturn with the company name and phone number written in white. Without any street lamps, it was too dark to see too far ahead of the cab. 
Punky appeared in the headlights and Eric stomped on the brakes. But the passenger side of the cab hit Punky hard and Eric sped off. At approximately 9.53 p.m., Hancock County Sheriff's Office responded to a single vehicle pedestrian entry crash south of County Road 109 in Allen Township. Punky's death sent Sherry spiraling. From the night he was hit, Sherry couldn't accept her son's death was an accident. Now she was out for revenge. 20 minutes had passed between the accident and anyone being contacted about Punky. This infuriated Sherry and gave her reason to believe that Heather pushed him in front of the cab. When it comes to Sherry's fantasies, however, what actually happened doesn't really matter. Because of her unwavering belief in Heather's guilt, she got someone to beat Heather. Marcy, a friend of the Brooks family, stood out on the porch with Sherry. Marcy tightly balled her hand into a fist and started punching Heather in the face. She then took her by the hair and rolled her down the steps. When she reached the bottom, Marcy started wailing her fists onto Heather. The Brooks family, cheering her on from the sidelines, encouraged Marcy to bring Heather to the road and curb stomp her. At that time, Heather's nose was bleeding profusely and it was clear that it was broken. All she kept saying was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In Sherry's eyes, this was punishment for getting Punky killed. Like his brother Zachary, as well as Danny Bixler, Punky was a member of the Crips. They, along with other members of the Brooks family, regularly engaged in assault, burglary, and drug trafficking. Before his death, he was grooming Zachary to rise in the ranks of the Crips. Punky wanted Zachary to fend for himself and to run Finley the way that he did. This plan was never fully realized before Punky's untimely death. It was also then that Zachary and Sherry really started to turn on Vera. Before Punky's death, Zachary and Vera's relationship was loving. After Punky died, he started beating her, and the pattern of abuse began to take shape. One time, Vera was locked in the room of the house that had Punky's memorial. Without any food and desperate to eat, Vera ate the candy bar that was left on Punky's memorial with his ashes. When Alyssa, another Brooks family member, found out, she shoved Vera onto the ground and punched her twice. This game of trumping up a charge to get someone else to beat Vera wasn't an isolated incident. By this time, Zachary was scouring his contacts thinking of people who could beat Vera. He got on his phone and he started calling and texting people. As soon as they got the word, they came rushing over. Zachary Brooks, tough new leader of the Finley Crips, was texting his dead brother's ex-girlfriends to come beat the mother of his child. The location of Vera's murder was chosen for a very specific reason. Travis Puckett was the son of Sherry's baby sister, Tabitha. According to members of the Brooks family, Zachary and Sherry wanted to do to Vera what happened to Travis sometime before. They wanted to lay her on the railroad track to get decapitated by an oncoming train. Travis became part of the Brooks Boys gang, hanging out at a local park riding skateboards. One day, he went off down the road and jumped the railroad tracks. Two trains were approaching at the same time, and it was too late for Travis to stop the inevitable. As he went to jump the tracks, he slipped under one of the trains and was decapitated. But what's important isn't whether Sherry and Zachary consciously wanted to imitate Travis's death. It's that they told the killers about their vendetta against Vera. Some members of the family speculate that Sherry was thinking about it when Vera accidentally dropped a brick on her foot while helping Sherry clean out some rabbit cages. When Zachary came running outside after hearing Sherry screaming, the blame was immediately placed on Vera. Sherry told the boys Vera dropped a brick on her foot on purpose. 
In the eyes of the Brooks boys, their slave had committed a fatal error. From this point on, things went drastically downhill. One time, Sherry jokingly suggested to Zachary that they should drug Vera and let her walk onto the train tracks at night. Eventually, Sherry said, she would fall over onto the tracks and the train would cut her into pieces. She added that if she was squished by the train, then police wouldn't be able to gather fingerprints. Two months prior to the murder, Finley police responded to a domestic violence call at 300 Center Street. This wasn't the first time Vera's abuse had been reported. If anyone was paying attention, they would have seen the violence getting worse. But whenever the cops came, Zachary and Sherry, amongst others in the house, made sure that Vera didn't say that Zachary was the one beating on her. They told her to say that she fell down the steps. Whatever injuries she had were her fault. Only this time, the tripped and fell excuse wouldn't work. A problem soon solved with a better lie. The family fabricated a person to blame Vera's injuries on. They ultimately decided on a black man that she had been dating. This, of course, was completely untrue. Sarah Pugh, Vera's friend, says that she wasn't even allowed to have a boyfriend besides Zachary. She further explained that Sherry wouldn't let Vera leave the house or have any outside contact with anyone. But the fake black boyfriend from Lima was the perfect character to use as a scapegoat for Vera's injuries, especially when she was admitted to the hospital for a possible concussion. In January of 2011, Sherry told Zachary that Vera had pushed their daughter Willadine into the coffee table. He responded by approaching Vera and punching her in the face. By the end of her beating, Vera had a broken nose. This January assault is a glaring example of how the system failed Vera. Sherry claims that Vera wouldn't talk to anyone else unless she was with her, but the truth was that Sherry didn't let Vera talk unless she was told to talk by Sherry. In the first news reports, it seemed that Danny Bixler was some crazy distant cousin who blew in from Tiffin, a town 25 miles east of Finley. An impression supported by the fact that only three weeks before, he had been released from Allen Correctional after serving almost three years in prison. He admitted he was in a gang at the prison, the 211 boys as he called it. Once free, Danny went on a spree of escalating violence, beginning at a park where, in an act of twisted chivalry, he attacked a teenager who had refused to give up a park swing to his new girlfriend, Nicole Peters. It was this assault charge that sent the fugitive couple on the lam, fleeing Tiffin. That's why he came to the Brooks house in Finley to hide. Nicole met Danny at the Seneca County Juvenile Detention Center after hanging with his brother Richard. She soon became obsessed, and in her letters to him and in conversations with her cellmate, she expressed her devotion to him. They'd only been together for a week and a half, but for Nicole, it had been a whirlwind romance. The reason Danny felt comfortable turning to Sherry is simple. He wasn't a distant cousin at all, but a close member of the family best illustrated by Sherry's relationship with the other Danny Bixler, his father. Sherry remarks that she and Danny Bixler Sr. are kissing cousins, though this is a quite literal moniker for their relationship. From this incestuous romance, Sherry conceived the first of her nine children, Scotty Emmons. In 2008, Danny Sr. stabbed his wife's lover and led police and sheriffs from three different counties on a high-speed chase in an 18-ton semi-truck. It was this act that made people believe that murder ran in Bixler blood. The chase began with a failed traffic stop in West Millgrove in Wood County. Five cruisers from multiple law enforcement agencies were already in pursuit of Danny Sr. and Nathaniel Bixler when the red semi-truck entered Seneca County through Fastoria. 
Danny Sr. threatened officers and warned that he would rather complete suicide than surrender to authorities. He was just outside of Tiffin when he and his passenger were caught and arrested. On Sunday, March 20th, 2011, Danny and Nicole ran from the assault charge in Tiffin and arrived at the Brooks house. That evening, they met a being named Vera, who, already living in a perpetual state of terror, could no longer be considered human. She now stayed in her room 24 hours a day, unless Sherry told her to come out. She didn't make eye contact with anyone, and often curled herself into a ball when she was around any other people in the house. Meanwhile, with Danny Bixler now at the Brooks house, Zachary was reunited with his long-lost crip brother. Considering how little they knew each other, they quickly became codependent. For the next four days, they unleashed an animalistic rage that is hard, but not impossible, to explain. Sherry Brooks and the entire family were telling Danny stories. After all, he had just been released from prison, and there is plenty of catching up to do. For the past three years, Danny resided at Allen Correctional. During his time there, he had been raped. Like many other men like him, after being raped in prison, he wanted to take revenge on anyone he could. Gangbangers and their bloody code of survival is very real. During their time telling stories, they accused Vera of disrespecting Punky. In their most vicious lie of all, knowing full well how he would react, they convinced Danny that Vera was the one who pushed Punky in front of the cab. So not only was Vera a threat to Sherry's possession of baby Willadine, but she also killed the Brooks gang's leader. Now Sherry wanted something done about it, and Sherry's little helpers soon got busy. Chucky, the youngest Brooks boy, had a padlock from his school locker that was sitting around the house. The boys decided to lock it onto a belt. They used this to whip Vera about her head and body. It soon became their weapon of choice, along with a long paddle with the number three on it. It didn't take long for Nicole to leave a bruise on Vera's bottom. It became an increasingly sick game for Danny and Nicole. The more Vera screamed, the more it became sexual for the couple. They got off on the beatings and would always run up to their room after abusing Vera. It didn't take long for nearly all of the bones in Vera's face to break. Most of the injuries to her face were courtesy of Nicole. Whenever Vera so much as looked in Danny's direction, Nicole would punch her in the face. This was mostly due to the lie Sherry continued to spout about Vera, including the lie that she had slept with all of Sherry's sons and wanted to sleep with Danny too. And through it all, to quote Danny Bixler, Vera just took it. The abusers also enjoyed mud stomping Vera. This act included stomping on the victim until they couldn't get up. According to Danny, this southern term comes from the same kind of beating in prison. Her injuries from the mud stomping were all too evident the following day, when amazingly, they took a break from beating Vera and walked her across the street to lunch. The lie spun by the Brooks family continued as they began to plot a cover story for Vera's murder. On March 24, 2011, at 2.54 p.m., Shannon Brooks posted to Facebook, quote, I found out I'm pregnant. Shannon states that she never told Sherry or anyone else that she was pregnant. Except, based on these Facebook timestamps, this claim is a demonstrable lie because in addition to posting she was pregnant two days earlier, Shannon was talking to Sherry about it the morning of the murder. The Brooks family claimed that on the day of Vera's murder, Vera discharged pepper spray all throughout the second floor of the house. Vera wasn't to blame for the pepper spray, of course, but Shannon was furious. She angrily expressed that if she lost her baby due to inhaling pepper spray, she would kill Vera. 
Shannon was admitted to the hospital, after which she claimed she suffered a miscarriage. Though the Brooks family used the miscarriage as their cover story for killing Vera, events leading up to her murder paint a very different picture. The first time Vera had been stabbed was before the night of the murder. She had gone to the bathroom and Danny and the other boys followed her. Danny stabbed her in the leg, and when Sherry saw the wound later, she dug her finger into it. But this was no nightmare. This was Vera's final day of life. Chucky once again joined in on Vera's abuse by forcing her to eat dog feces. The boys also didn't hesitate to add sexual assault to their list of torture. They viciously sodomized Vera with a plunger. She was menstruating during the time of her torture. They raped her with a toothbrush and forced her to brush her teeth with it while it was still bloody. The following morning, five hours before the pepper spray incident, they were trying to stab her again. This was during a visit from the mother of Punky's child, Angel Mite. Sherry made up a story of how Vera gave the baby sour milk, and the family used this lie to beat her. Even Chucky joined in by beating her with a fishing pole. A half hour after Angel left, a brawl broke out and the police were called. Finley PD was dispatched to 300 Center Street at 2.12 p.m. The fight the police had been called to break up had been between Danny, Nicole, Garth, Chucky, Zachary, and another gang down the street. Danny's recent stint in prison was what worried the police the most. Plus, Danny was known for his teardrop tattoo. When he pulled a knife out on the neighbors, anything could have happened. The police knocked on the door of the Brooks home, but Sherry didn't answer right away. She was too busy hiding Vera. Sherry hid Vera in Scotty's room, and he admitted that if the police would have seen how bruised she was, they would have started asking questions. But the police weren't there for Vera, and they never saw her that afternoon either. The fight was over by the time the police arrived. While they interrogated the other gang, the Brooks boys were in the house ready to flee. Zachary had a warrant for his arrest, and Danny and Nicole had the warrant from Tiffin. In that short run from the Brooks house to the Schwab house, Zachary, Danny, and Nicole began a chain of events that would end five hours later with Vera dead on the tracks. Samantha Schwab is Zachary's aunt. They hid in the basement of her house until the police left. They were next seen two hours later walking in an alley three miles away, having walked near the railroad tracks. The trio was not only plotting the murder itself, but their escape route as well. They planned to escape to Kentucky after the murder. This is confirmed because the day after Vera was murdered and Danny and Nicole were arrested, Zachary desperately reached out to Gina who was living in Kentucky with her mother. He figured at the very least he could still use the escape route for himself. With the murder scene scouted and an escape planned ready to hatch, the trio made their way across town in the back of George Speck's pickup truck, a man married to Zachary's cousin. By 5.15, the Brooks house was filled with pepper spray, forcing a complete evacuation. The pepper spray was discharged upstairs, but it was coming downstairs once Danny opened the door. Shannon arrived at the ER at 5.32 p.m. At 9 p.m., Zachary summoned Danny, Nicole, and his brother Garth to Scotty's room. This meeting was to finalize where they were going to kill Vera. Danny wanted to do it in a park that they had passed by earlier that day on their way back from their Aunt Sam's house. But Zachary wanted to go back to the bridge nearby, insisting they stick to the plan of having the train hit Vera. As the murderers went into action, Vera began to panic. When they told her to put her shoes on, she kept asking why. Deep down, she knew something bad was about to happen. 
Zachary said he would be coming along, but this wasn't a comfort to Vera. She was just as scared to leave with Zachary, the boy she fell in love with, as anyone else. As she sat on the couch, slowly lacing up her shoes, she looked at Shannon. Her eyes begged for a way out, pleading for anyone to help her. When it became clear that Shannon wasn't going to help, she turned her attention towards Scotty. She felt safe with him and asked him to come with her. Thankfully, Scotty agreed. He told her he'd be right back and he had to go upstairs to put his shoes on. As he made his way up the stairs, he was stopped from leaving. Scotty admitted that Sherry told him to tell the police that it was Danny who stopped him from going with Vera, but in reality, it was Zachary. Without Scotty to accompany them, Danny, Nicole, and Zachary ushered Vera outside, ignoring her pleas. Her final goodbye was to Sherry. She said to her, Good night, sugar babe. As they closed the door behind them, Vera cried, begging to go home, but Nicole threatened to crack her head on the porch if she didn't stop crying. The temperature was below freezing that night, yet Danny wore a borrowed pair of dark blue gym shorts out of respect for their former owner, Punky Brooks. He also wore a blue Crips bandana, signaling that this was official gang business. They walked her near the tracks before the final acts of brutality began. The first stab wounds, according to the autopsy report, were shallow and likely done by Nicole. Vera was then cut from ear to ear in a sawing motion, as described by the coroner. This initial failed attempt, as Vera's recovered sweatshirt shows, happened while she was still dressed. In one final act of humiliation, they forced her to take all her clothes off. Her clothes were later found scattered around in nearby trees and in the bushes. Besides humiliating her, the trio made her undress because the knife they were using was too dull to inflict any deep wounds. There were a total of 21 stab wounds. They stabbed Vera in the legs to prevent her from running away. Then, they slashed at her throat again to decapitate her, but were ultimately unsuccessful because they couldn't saw through her vertebrae. Plus, they figured the train would do the rest of the decapitating anyway. With that, they left Vera's bloodied and battered body on the tracks to die in the quiet chill of the night. About two hours after Vera's murder, her killers and their friend Alan Cap went to Danny's sister Desta Bixler's house. Only Danny, Zachary, and Nicole knew about the murder, but a party ensued at Desta's house nonetheless. Everyone was drinking, though Zachary cradled a bottle of vodka that he finished by himself. Nicole smiled for a picture. Tonight was not only to be celebrated, but memorialized. Nicole proudly remarked that she earned her first teardrop. After all, why wouldn't they celebrate? To them, Vera was the abuser of baby Willadine, killer of Punky, smasher of Sherry's feet. But on the tracks, something was happening. Vera had an ounce of life left in her, and she was determined to use it. Using her final bit of strength, she moved herself off of the rails and into the middle of the tracks. She contracted into the fetal position, the way she had slept so many nights before her last. As she lay in a crumpled ball, she was only 12 inches high. Miraculously, this allowed the front of the train, which police later found out to have a 13-inch clearance, to pass over her without touching her. Meanwhile, the party raged on. They drank and chain-smoked cigarettes until Desta ran out. Desta and Danny decided to head over to the gas station nearby so they could keep smoking. Their footsteps were the only sounds besides the crickets on that still spring night. 
That is, until they approached the gas station and heard the train nearby. But the train wasn't moving, Desta noted. It was some time after three in the morning when they spotted the train halted on the tracks. They entered the gas station and asked for cigarettes. Then Desta asked the cashier why the train was stopped. Desta admitted that she was just being nosy and asked if there was something wrong with the engine. The cashier told the pair that a body had been found on the tracks. Desta looked at Danny, who stood frozen. She realized the story he told her on the way to the gas station about murdering Vera was true, and she was horrified. In addition to Desta's information, police later learned that there had been an eyewitness after all. Across the street from the Brooks home, there was a camera outside of a Salvation Army that captured grainy footage of Danny, Vera, and Nicole walking in a single file line, heading south with the knife held against Vera. Although the story of what happened that night was eventually revealed, the truth was first modeled in Sherry's lies. She deliberately misinformed the police, knowing full well the extent to which she and her family were responsible for Vera's death. Sherry seemed to have that hold over people, something about the way she carried herself and made people believe what she told them. These deceptions, which she hones over time, come in two types, lies to protect and lies to instigate. What happened next was an example of the former. A homeless man named Larry Spencer found himself at the Brooks house once or twice, and that's all it took for Sherry to rope him into her lies. This man that the family didn't even know was suddenly being referred to as Vera's boyfriend, and the man who killed her. To those who knew about Vera's life inside the Brooks house, the story on its face was ridiculous. They said she took off with her boyfriend Larry, but she wasn't even allowed to have a boyfriend except for Zachary. In fact, she wasn't allowed to go anywhere with anybody. They wouldn't even let her have a cell phone. Sherry said that she didn't need one because then she could get a hold of her mom or she could talk to whoever she wanted. After Danny and Nicole were arrested, the cover story was modified to fit the changing situation. Gone were any questions about what role she and her family played in Vera's death. Now, it was as if they were just passive spectators. The only thing people wanted to know was how they could sit there and watch Danny and Nicole do something so barbaric. As the accusations intensified, the truth of what happened got further and further away. Confronted with this mounting evidence, Danny first tried to push blame on others, then started making damning admissions. By mid-afternoon, he and his interrogators were driving back to the train bridge, returning to the scene of the crime. There, he pointed to the spot where just 18 hours earlier, he threw the murder weapon into the water. The blade that he used was from the kitchen in the Brooks house. For her part, Nicole was more tight-lipped. To this day, exactly what she did at the tracks remains a mystery. But she wasn't as skilled at the Brooks family at lying, and it didn't take her long to implicate herself as well. As far as the police knew, they caught the only two people who tortured and murdered Vera Joe Regal. What they didn't know is that the entire Brooks family had lied to make sure that only Danny and Nicole took the fall. When it came to motive, on the final day of court, the judge admitted that he still had no idea why the murder happened. As everyone grappled to make sense of this, it was evident that the community failed Vera Joe Regal. But there were those who were directly responsible for Vera's death. The evidence revealed that on March 26 of 2011, Danny Bixler assumed the role of self-appointed judge, jury, and executioner. For what? Jealousy, revenge, unfocused rage, some perverse sense of family honor? It doesn't appear anyone will ever really know. 
Danny Bixler pleaded guilty to aggravated murder and said that he and his girlfriend, Nicole Peters, planned Vera's death. He was sentenced to 40 years to life in prison for the murder and will be eligible for parole after 40 years. Nicole Peters is serving a sentence of 23 years for her involvement. Sherry was sentenced to 40 months in prison for drug trafficking in 2015. Zachary Brooks was found guilty of obstructing justice after lying to police and threatening a witness in Vera's murder investigation. In 2011, he was sentenced to four years in prison. No one was ever charged for torturing Vera inside the Brooks home. As it became clear the legal system was going to minimize the enormity of what happened to Vera, frustration grew throughout the community. This led to the formation of Voices for Vera, an activist group dedicated to bringing the people who brutalized her to justice. There were many people involved in the abuse that led up to Vera's death, but only two people were charged with the murder, despite the lies that were spouted by numerous members of the Brooks family. Moreover, no one in the prosecutor's office determined the author of these lies, evidenced by how the judge sentenced Sherry for passing on secondhand information that she created. Not only was the court fooled about Sherry's role in making the cover story, no one even bothered to determine when she told her family to say it. Even worse, by not getting convicted of a major felony, Zachary still had parental rights to Willa Dean. The morning after Vera's body was discovered, Sherry Brooks contacted Hancock County Children's Services to request that her son Zachary be granted custody of Willa Dean. Months later, a judge denied that request and the child was put up for adoption. To prove his fitness as a parent, Zachary had been required to have two supervised visits, but he failed to appear for the second one, which the court used against him in its ruling. He didn't come back because his first visit had been cut off after 15 minutes due to his daughter's hysterical crying and refusal to let him touch her. In court, a letter was read that was found in Vera's purse following her murder. It said, I love you, Willa Dean. You are a good little baby girl to us. I'm glad to be your mommy, and I'm glad that I had you on November 4th at 4.16 a.m. Six pounds, two ounces, 19 inches long. Mommy loves you. Vera was a 2005 graduate of Finley High School. She loved to be around people and especially loved her daughter. She liked country music and wearing jewelry. Vera Jo Regal was interred at Knollcrest Cemetery in Arcadia, Ohio. In the end, Vera is an angel, one whose wretched life and bad death shines a light on the rest of us. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for next week's story from the mortuary.